Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I really enjoyed last week getting to know a little bit more about uh, the framers, particularly those involved in the Declaration of Independence. And uh, we spent some time talking about Samuel Adams last week. I understand there's another famous Adams that uh, we could stand to learn about. Well, there are several other famous Adams we could talk about. John Adams and also his son, John Quincy Adams, who accompanied him many times on his diplomatic trips and who also served as the president of the United States one of the most brilliant men ever to serve in the White House. But today, let's look at John Adams. This is the cousin of the man we talked about last week, Samuel Adams. We saw last week that Sam Adams is often called the father of the American Revolution, often called the last of the Puritans. And his cousin, John Adams, is also from Massachusetts, and in many ways, would exemplify the spirit of the Puritans. But there are several things that we would see him as being somewhat distinct from Sam Adams. He was less flamboyant than Sam Adams. He was somebody that I kind of identify with because he succeeded in life on the basis of his merit, his hard work, his abilities. He didn't have the diplomatic skills of George Washington. He didn't have the writing eloquence of Thomas Jefferson or the speaking eloquence of, say, Daniel Webster or Patrick Henry. He didn't have the personal flair of Alexander Hamilton or the personal charm of Franklin. But one of the things I think we could probably say about him was that he was probably the greatest scholar to ever occupy the White House. Many would say, no, the greatest scholar was Thomas Jefferson, and Jefferson was indeed a great scholar. But I would say that Adams' scholarship was broader than Jefferson's. Adams knew the Enlightenment figures, knew them very well, and classics as well. But Adams, besides knowing the classics and the Enlightenment figures, He also knew the church fathers, those in the Reformation, as well as those in the Enlightenment. Just to give you an example of the type of scholarship that John Adams was capable of, I'll give you a letter that he wrote on 1814 to Thomas Jefferson about Plato. He's writing to Jefferson, and he says, I am very glad that you have seriously read Plato, and still more rejoice to find that your reflections upon him so perfectly harmonize with mine. Some 30 years ago, I took upon me the severe task of going through all his works. Now, I wonder how many of our audience have gone through all of Plato's works. I've read some of them. I can't really say I've read all of them. But listen to the way he read them. With the help of two Latin translations, and one English and one French translation, and comparing some of the most remarkable passages with the Greek, I labored through the tedious toil 
Did you study Plato that way? Not many people do. But he says, my disappointment was very great. My astonishment was greater. And my disgust was shocking. His laws and his republic, from which I expected most, disappointed me most. And if you understand Adam's view of human nature, that people are depraved, that they are stained with original sin, and that they are not capable of moral perfection, you would understand why you would see the utopian views of Plato as expressed in the Republic as utterly unrealistic and utterly dangerous. Another interesting thing about Adams, though, is that for about a century and a half, he was the longest-lived president we ever had. He died at age 90, and that was at a time when lifespans were somewhat shorter than they are today, and no other president lived age 90 for a long time thereafter. Finally, his record was broken by Ronald Reagan, who I believe died at 92, and his was broken very shortly thereafter by Gerald Ford, who lived longer than he did by only a few months. And very shortly thereafter, their record was broken by the elder George Bush. And now his record has been broken by Jimmy Carter, who is 96 and still living. But for a long time, Adams was the longest lived president we ever had. And I was always taught in school that he was the longest of all, of course. He combined scholarship with practical experience. And therefore, he had a great deal of wisdom that is beneficial to us. Now, when we look to his early schooling, we find that he's raised in the theology of the Puritans. He's born in 1735, which makes him older than many of the other founding fathers, even though he lives past many of them as well. And we read concerning his early schooling that he was educated, learned to read on the Bible and on the New England Primer. There in the New England Primer that children were educated with at that time, we see people would learn the verses for the, the alphabet by verses of the Bible or by biblical messages. For example, we read that Zebediah served the Lord, and that we read other things based on the alphabet from others in the Bible like this, but in Adam's fall, we send all. And in unison, John Adams and his classmates, little boys in class there, would read from the New England primer, a rather sober message, death education. There is a dreadful, fiery hell where wicked ones must always dwell. There is a heaven full of joy where goodly ones must always stay. My God, to one of these my soul must fly, as in a moment when I die. In the burying place may see graves shorter there than I. From death's arrest, no age is free. Young children, too, must die. My God, may such an awful sight 
awakening be to me. Besides this early education, we find also that John Adams at age 15 entered the Harvard College, which at that time was largely for training people for the ministry, and he at this time had a strong interest in Christianity, always did throughout his life, but he attended church, and not just Sunday morning, but many times the different church Sunday evening, wanted to get different perspectives within Christianity. His diary is most interesting in this regard. On the 10th of June of 1753, he writes, a clear morning, heard Dr. Appleton expound those words in 1 Corinthians 12, chapter 7, first verses in the afternoon, heard him preach from those words in 26 of Matthew 41, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The next Sunday, he writes, sunshiny morning, heard Mr. Appleton expound those words in 1 Corinthians 12 to the end of verse 11, and the afternoon, heard him preach from the first psalm, 24th, Cloudy morning, heard Mr. Cotton of Newtown vociferate from the 19th of Proverbs, second verse, in the afternoon from those words from the 37th Psalm and fourth verse, delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee thy desires. He speculates a great deal, too, on the widespread implications of Christianity. He says, for example, in his diary on the 24th of April, astronomers tell us with good reason that not only all planets and satellites in our solar system, but all the unnumbered worlds that revolve around the fixed stars are inhabited, as well as the globe of Earth. If this is the case, all mankind are no more in comparison of the whole rational creation of God than a point to the orbit of Saturn. Perhaps all these different ranks of rational beings have, to a greater or lesser degree, committed moral wickedness. If so, I ask a Calvinist whether he will subscribe to the, this alternative. Either God Almighty must assume the respective shapes of all these different species and suffer the penalties of their crimes in their stead, or else all these beings must be consigned to everlasting perdition. Well, the next Sunday he writes, the reflection that I, or next day he says, the reflection that I penned yesterday appears on review to be weak enough. For first, we know not that the inhabitants of other globes have sinned. Nothing can be argued in this manner till it is proved at least probable that all those species of rational beings have revolted against their rightful sovereign. Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And uh, I don't know, Colonel, I should feel guilty that we're reading John Adams' diary here, but uh, I'm fascinated by what I'm learning about him and the way this man's brain worked. I don't think he would mind at all that we read his diary. Nothing that ever suggests that he intended it to be private. Another thing we know about John Adams, too, is that in 1764, at the time he's about 28 or 29, he marries Abigail Smith, a very strong Christian woman. And Abigail Adams is one of the leading women of the American founding period. She and Dolly Madison particularly are very outstanding in this regard. I give the edge to Abigail in that regard, I think. 
In his early adult life, he engaged in law practice. He favored independence for America at this time, as Sam Adams did. And yet, he defended those British soldiers who were charged with having shot Americans in the Boston Massacre. And he managed to establish that they had acted largely in self-defense. One of the results of his defense was that most of them were acquitted entirely. A couple others were convicted of minor charges, and one of them had to be branded and so on, but none of them were convicted of murder, and that was quite an achievement of John Adams, and it shows a lot of integrity. In fact, his cousin Sam Adams at first objected that John Adams was defending the British here, and after he looked into it more, he decided that John Adams was right. They deserved a trial, and they deserved a good attorney. And anyway, we also know that he served as the United States Commissioner to France. In France, he was never exactly loved like Ben Franklin was. He didn't have Franklin's charm or elegance. He was blunt-spoken, and as a blunt-spoken man, he didn't always say what the French wanted to hear, but they respected him for his honesty and for his ability. He saw the French Revolution coming, and he knew that when it came, it was going to be a disaster. It was going to lead to nothing but bloodshed and anarchy, and eventually it'd be replaced by a tyranny far worse than the one that it sought to overthrow. And he wrote on one occasion, after the descent into anarchy and the reign of terror, he said, all that astonished me in the whole revolution was that all the disasters which overwhelmed the empire and destroyed the repose of Europe were not foreseen and foretold by every man of sense in Europe. And he went on to say that even primitive man had a better government than that of revolutionary France. Well, several other things that he saw, he saw that part of what was going wrong in France was the degeneration of French morals. And the French morals, as they degenerated, they would lead inevitably, he thought, to a destruction of any semblance of responsible government in France, and that the ultimate result would be that France would fall into a form of tyranny and, well, exactly the kind of degeneracy that later took place. Here's something he wrote about the role of women in American society and other societies. He says, for all that I have read of history of government, of human life and manners, I have drawn this conclusion, that the manners of women were the most infallible barometer to a certain degree of morality and virtue in a nation. All that I have since read and all the observations I have made in different nations have confirmed me in this opinion. The manners of women are the surest criterion by which to determine whether a Republican government is practicable as a nation or not. The Jews, the Greeks, the Romans, the Swiss, the Dutch, all lost their public spirit, their Republican principles and habits, and their Republican form of government when they lost the modesty and domestic virtues of their women. The foundations of national morality must be laid in private families, 
in vain are schools, academies, and universities instituted if loose principles and licentious habits are impressed upon children in their earliest years. The mothers are the earliest and most important instructors of youth. The vices and examples of the parents cannot be concealed from the children. How is it possible that children can have any just sense of the sacred obligations of morality or religion if from their earliest infancy they learn that their mothers live in habitual infidelity to their fathers and their fathers in as constant infidelity to their mothers? Morality in the home was of great importance, and morality in the home, he said, is inculcated largely by the women. He had a conversation with King George on one occasion, and in that conversation, he, George said that he didn't think that John Adams was very fond of England at the time, and Adams simply replied, Every man should love his own country best. And King George said, no honest man would think otherwise, and seemed to approve entirely of at least that part of John Adams's thought. Well, John Adams served as president, of course. He was our second president. By the time Washington had served two terms, the nation had kind of divided into two political parties, the Democratic-Republicans under Jefferson, who wanted a limited federal government, and the Federalists, who wanted a stronger federal government. Those were led by, by Hamilton. Adams was of the Federalist Party, but considerably more moderate. And in his presidency, he tried to steer a middle course between the Federalists and the Jeffersonians. He often offended both. And as a result, he was not re-elected in 1800. Now, at this time, there seemed to be a certain bitterness that maybe overtook Adams for a while, and particularly since the one who had defeated him was his former friend, Thomas Jefferson. There seemed to be an enmity between Jefferson and Adams for quite some time. But as we move into the 18-teens, we find that that friendship is restored, and their correspondence from that point on becomes fascinating. It also appears at this time that John Adams may have veered somewhat from Puritan, Trinitarian Christianity. And from several of the things that he says, it appears that he had some doubts about the Trinity and may have even approached Unitarianism, although he certainly had not in any way become anything like a deist. It appears that he believed in the resurrection. It appears he believed in some of the miracles and that he believed that the Bible was a revelation of God. He clearly says this. He simply questions whether it taught a Trinity, at one point, he makes the statement, ask me not then whether I am Catholic or Protestant, Calvinist or Arminian. As far as they are Christians, I wish to be a fellow disciple with them all. In other words, even though Adams might have had some questions about the Trinity, 
And even though he seems to have moved away from the Calvinism of his youth, he always claimed to be a Christian, described himself as throughout all my life, I have been a church-going animal, was very critical of Greek and Roman thought and of the French philosophes who bought into this. And, for example, he says concerning some of the French philosophes that as much as I love, esteem, and admire the Greeks, I believe the Hebrews have done more to enlighten and civilize the world. Moses did more than all their legislators and philosophers. And he says, was there no genius among the Hebrews, among the Christians, Mohammedans? I understand you, say it is atheistic genius alone that you would honor or tolerate. Shows he was on the side of God and on the side of Christianity. just like that, we are back. This is Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. You know, Colonel, I thought I knew John Adams. And I guess I've bumped up against him once or time in a history book, but it is so fascinating to get this insight into uh, what, how the man thought, what it was that drove his thinking. And I have to admit, I think I may have misjudged him in, in some aspects. Uh, I, I always kind of thought he was a little bit of a hothead. I would not say hothead. I would say blunt and undiplomatic sometimes. And probably there were times when he would let his emotions affect the way he would think about somebody or even talk about somebody. But no, I wouldn't really call him a hothead. In fact, I would say one thing that would characterize his political views, especially very much influenced by his religious views, is that he would be a moderate, somewhere between, say, Hamilton and his strong federalism and Jefferson and his strong anti-federalism. You would see John Adams somewhere in between. But let's try to characterize a few of his basic thoughts here. One of these would be a belief in revealed religion. He believed that God revealed truth to man and that he reveals his truth through the Bible, but also through the God-given powers of human reason. But what we know about truth, he says, we know because God has revealed it to us. He asks on one occasion, how could that nation that is Israel preserve its creed among the monstrous theologies of all the other nations of the earth? Revelation, you will say, and a special providence, and I will not contradict you. For I cannot say with Dupuy that a revelation is impossible or improbable. Christianity, you will say, was a, French, a fresh revelation. I will not deny this. As I understand the Christian religion, it was and is a revelation. Second, he would say that the main source of God's revelation to man is the Bible. It is through the Bible that God reveals his truth to us. He describes the Bible as containing the most perfect philosophy, the most perfect morality, and the most refined policy. And he says, the Bible is the most Republican, that's Republican with a small r, of course, the most Republican book in the world. And he says the Bible contains the commandments necessary to establish and maintain 
the moral fiber essential to Republican society. He says, how it has happened that millions of fables, tales, legends have been blended with both Jewish and Christian traditions that have made them the most bloody religion that ever existed. How has it happened that all the fine arts, architecture, painting, sculpture, music, poetry, and oratory have been prostituted from the creation of the world to the sordid and detestable purposes of superstition and fraud. And he's saying that even though the Bible has been corrupted, the Bible itself, he says, is pure and a revelation from God and establishes the morality that makes self-government possible. At one time he wrote that the, the, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. He also had a very strong respect for the person of Jesus Christ. Earlier in his life, he probably accepted the Trinitarian doctrine that he was taught. As he moved later into life, into the 1800s and even into the 18-teens, he may have doubted the doctrine of the Trinity, but at no time that I've been able to find did he ever doubt that Jesus Christ was in some way divine, in some way more than a mere human being. He said we are to understand, no doubt, that he believed the resurrection of Jesus, some of his miracles, his inspiration, but in what degree? He did not believe in the inspiration of the writings that contain his history, yet he believed in the apocalyptic beast, and he believed as much as he pleased in the writings of Daniel and John. So he does seem to believe many of these things, and he believes that, later in life at least, he believes that Jesus maybe is not the second person of the Trinity, but he is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He died for our sins, and he is something more than simply a mere human being. Clearly, he has the highest respect for Jesus Christ. Fourth thing is, he has a strong interest in millennialism. By millennialism, we mean the idea that there is going to be a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ at the end of the world, and some are post-millennial, saying that Christ will come at the end of his millennium, during which time he is reigning from heaven. Others are premillennial, saying that he will come before, and he will reign on earth. Adams has a strong interest in this, particularly in the post-millennial views of many of the Puritans of his day. He echoes these themes when he asks, can you give me any news of the millennium? Is it to commence soon enough for me to entertain a hope that I may live a thousand years longer? I want to study the Chaldean language, that is the Babylonian, the dialects, and all the books that are written in them. I want to read all the Christian fathers and ecclesiastical historians. I want to learn the Chinese language and to study all the Asi Asiatic researches. And he does say, though, that until the millennium comes, human nature is going to remain as it is. Throughout all of this, we see a fifth principle, and that is a strong faith in the providence of God. He believes in God as the supreme, the omniscient, 
the omnipotent, the beneficent, the loving, forgiving creator, the preserver of the universe and of mankind. And near the end of his life, he confesses that I know a kind providence has preserved and supported me for 85 years and seven months, though through many dangers and difficulties, through great weakness, and I am not afraid to trust in its goodness for all eternity. I have a numerous posterity to whom my confidence may be of some importance, and I am willing to await the order of the supreme power. He is also a strong believer in natural law and natural rights. He served on the committee with Thomas Jefferson to draft the Declaration of Independence. In fact, originally, the proposal was that Adams would do the initial draft. But Adams insisted, no, Jefferson, you draft it. First of all, it should be by a Virginian rather than somebody up here. Besides that, you are popular, I am unpopular. And besides that, you are 10 times the writer I am. And Adams was a good writer, but he didn't have that sublime eloquence that Jefferson could occasionally express. And at no time did Jefferson express that eloquence better than in the Declaration of Independence. But Adams approved the Declaration, particularly where it speaks about the laws of nature and of nature's God, where it says we are created equal, and where it says that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. And because God is the author of the laws of nature, he says, the great and almighty author of nature, who had first established those rules which regulate the world, can as easily suspend those laws whenever his providence sees sufficient reason for such suspension. Listen to this now. There can be no objection then to the miracles of Jesus Christ. Likewise with moral laws. He believes that they are established by God. Also, John Adams is a strong believer in the sinfulness of human nature, and that would be a seventh principle of his beliefs. This comes from his Calvinist upbringing, partly from his realistic or pessimistic nature itself, possibly just from his observations of politics throughout his many years of life. But he says that mankind has not changed and will not change since the Garden of Eden, at least until the millennium. And therefore, he says, no such passion as a love of democracy, stronger than self-love or superior to private interest ever did, or ever can prevail in the mind of citizens in general. And no love of equality, at least since Adam's fall, ever existed in human nature. In other words, we have to design government so it's in people's self-interest to do what the law requires them to do.
Welcome back to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're learning today about uh, John Adams, courtesy of Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. It's great to get this depth, and it certainly uh, makes more sense that uh, we know a little bit more about what, what drove the thinking and the actions of that founding generation. And boy, Adams was a, was a very, uh, he was a stalwart individual. Lots to look up to there. Tremendous. He's a great role model for us to look up to. And anyway, some regard him in his older years as a bitter old man, but I think it's his view of human nature that makes him maybe more forgiving. Sometimes, if you have a high view of human nature, you are very forget- unforgiving when people don't live up to your standards. Sometimes it's been said that liberals love humanity but hate people. Because people don't live up to their ideals. People have a sinful nature. And that's one of the reasons Adams could be forgiving of Jefferson. He writes, for example, I don't believe Jefferson ever hated me. On the contrary, I believe he always liked me, but he detested Hamilton and my whole administration. And then he wished to be president, and I stood in his way, so he did everything he could to pull me down. But if I should quarrel with him for that, I might quarrel with every man I have ever had anything to do with in life. This is human nature. I forgive all my enemies and hope they may find mercy in heaven. Mr. Jefferson and I have grown old and retired from public life, so we are upon our ancient terms of goodwill. Another thing that this led to, his distrust of human nature, led him to a distrust of government power because he recognized You know, we need government. Government has to be strong enough to hold in the sinful nature of man. We've got to have a government that can preserve law and order. That's why anarchy can't work. That's why the Articles of Confederation weren't sufficient. But he also knew that those who run the government have the same sinful nature as everybody else, and therefore they cannot be trusted with too much power. And that being the case, He believed strongly that government power needs to be limited. And that's one of the things that brought him into kind of a middle ground position between the Hamiltonians, who saw the solution to public anarchy and public lawlessness as being high government power, versus, on the other hand, the Jeffersonian idea, which could, in his view, he thought lead to not enough government power. And so he wanted government to be checked, to be of limited power. I think the idea of the Constitution, that we have a government of limited delegated powers in which we give only certain limited powers to the federal government, others reserved to the states, in which we separate those powers among legislative, executive, and judicial branches, and which we have checks and balances among those branches, I think that would meet very much with John Adams' approval. And even though he was not a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, he had written a very lengthy discourse on the constitutions of the colonies and on the constitutions of other countries. And various delegates to the convention read and profited from that discourse. Another thing about him, this would be a ninth principle, would be a distrust of democracy. Not republicanism, but democracy in the sense of unfettered majority rule. 
He thought that when you put unfettered majority rule in the hands of the people, as in the French Revolution, that this would lead to nothing but disaster. The slogan of French liberals, Vox Popularius, Vox Dei, the voice of the people, is the voice of God. John Adams said concerning this, if the majority is 51 and the minority 49, is it certainly the voice of God? If tomorrow one should change to 50-50, where then is the voice of God? If two in the minority should become the majority, is the voice of God changed? And so he says that vox populari est non vox dei. The voice of the people is sometimes the voice of Mahomet, of Caesar, of Catiline, the Roman populist, of the Pope and the devil. He believed pure democracy was dangerous. And therefore, a tenth principle is that he believed in support for balanced, constitutional, Republican government. And the English, or the American Constitution, would very well represent that. He once described what a republic is, an empire of laws and not of men. That is in which nobody, even the president, is above the law. As we have seen already in 11th principle, is his belief that Republican government cannot possibly survive without moral virtue. And that in the home, particularly with mothers, is where moral virtue must be taught. But he wrote, there must be a positive passion for the public good, the public interest, honor, power, and glory established in the minds of the people, or there can be no Republican government, nor any real liberty. And this public passion must be superior to all private passions. Next, he believed that Christianity must be the cornerstone of Republican government. As he wrote, suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book, and every member should relegate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, in frugality and industry, to justice and kindness, etc. He goes on to say, in this commonwealth, no man would impair his health by gluttony, drunkenness, and lust. However, he recognized the day is going to come that nobody is going to ever buy into this completely. And as a result, we need the Republican government that keeps the sinful nature of man in check. People are just simply not able to live that way. He wrote to the French philosophe, there is no such thing as morality without a supposition of a God. There is no right or wrong in the universe without supposition of a moral government and an intellectual or moral governor. Well, that gives you some of the principles of John Adams, very good principles on which to build a government. And the founding fathers, in fact, did build their government upon these principles. John Adams, the day before the Declaration of Independence was adopted, wrote to his wife, Abigail Adams, that this will be a great day of liberty, and this day should be celebrated in generations hereafter with acts of solemnity toward Almighty God. It should be celebrated with parades, with speeches, with guns, with games, with fireworks, kind of the way we celebrate it today. 
but that in all of this, we should be looking to the work of God in preserving American independence. 1826 was a very important year because this was the 50th year after 1776. And so a great anniversary of American independence. And while American independence had been celebrated annually, this year there were special celebrations. And in his hometown, there was a special celebration. At age 90, he attended that celebration. He was asked to give a speech at this time, but he was 90 years old. And so he refused. So finally they asked him, Mr. Adams, would you give us a toast? And so he said, I will give you independence forever. And when he was asked, would you like to add anything more? He answered, not a word. Now, here's what's so fascinating about this, is that that was his last, 4th of July. Later that day, in the evening, he started to sink. And as he lay dying, he, his last words were, Thomas Jefferson still survives. He was not aware that Thomas Jefferson had died in Virginia only three hours before. 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Two of the leading founding fathers died. And I would suggest to you that when they died, an era died with them. The founding era, as of July 4th, 1826, has to come to an end. But the principles that they stood for certainly don't come to an end. Those principles stand. And in the tradition of John Adams, Sam Adams, and Jefferson we'll talk about next week, we need to stand for those principles today.